Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, Greg, you know how that anti-venom laboratory has been leasing space down on the second floor? Yeah, yeah, April Fool's Day. Don't even bother. Okay, um, most people don't understand how anti-venom is made. First, the poisonous snakes are quote-unquote milked by squeezing the venom from their fangs. Then the venom is injected into a sheep, rabbit, or goat, or horse and diluted, but gradually increasing doses. Blah, blah, blah. Really, how big an idiot do you think I am? And well, uh, well, gradually, the sheep or whatever produces antibodies, which can be harvested for use in humans who have been bitten. I'm just going to close my eyes and nap. But one of the sheep had a strange reaction to the process, and it grew fangs and a rattle on its tail, and now it's loose in the stairwells, and they're concerned it might have made its way up to the third floor. You know, I give you credit. That's a pretty good one. At least you... <laughs> Criminy, what is that thing? A rattle sheep! Why didn't you tell me this was not a joke? Because that's my April Fool's, that it's not a joke! See ya! Don't leave me alone with this thing! Today on the show, the history and psychology of pranks. And now he left his whoopee cushion on the bus again. Colin McEnroe. I, I just, I hate the rattle sheep. Uh, it frightens me. Um, all right, so I don't even know if I can recover from that, actually, and do the show. We're doing a show today about the pranks, the psychology of pranks, uh, why people do them, uh, why people sometimes concentrate them on one day of the year, um, what the even history of them are. Speaking of pranks, I should just say there are some people, I can tell from Facebook, tuning in right now to see if I'm going to be talking about Governor Rowland and the Foley, Wilson Foley case. Um, I'm not, but uh, tomorrow I will be guest hosting the Wheelhouse at 9 a.m. Uh, I think Kevin Rennie is going to join me. John Lender will be there. We will be talking about that uh, then, so... If you're hankering and hungering for that, uh, you just have to wait a few hours until tomorrow at 9 a.m. But don't leave now because we're going to do a very interesting show for you, as I say, about pranks. Uh, let me tell you who's going to be joining us. A little later in the show, you'll uh, hear from Joey Skaggs, uh, sometimes called the world's greatest hoaxer, uh, although I guess he or or hoaxer, hoaxer or hoaxer, not sure. Um, I, I think he declines that honor, but he specializes uh, in fooling the media, which <laughs> unfortunately is an extremely easy thing. <laughs> thing to do. Uh, but he he tends to appear on, you know, shows like Good Morning America as something that he is not really. And so like a, the sample thing would be that, for example, he did do a whole thing. Uh, he was a spokesman for gypsies, uh, objecting to the name Gypsy Moth and trying to get scientists to change the name and stuff like that. And of course, lots of talk shows put him on the air because they're idiots. Um, and then uh, towards the end of the show, we'll also be talking to Tom Mabe, also uh, sort of a professional prankster uh, living in Kentucky, uh, maybe best known for some stuff you've seen on YouTube involving telemarketers. We'll, we'll tell you all about that as we go along. Um, here in the first segment, though, uh, we're going to talk to Martin Wainwright. He's the author of the Guardian's book of April Fool's Day, and Jeff Pinsker. Pinsker, Jeff Pinsker is the president of Klutz uh, and the vice president of Scholastic Incorporated. Uh, he's joining us uh, from a radio studio in an unknown location. Jeff Pinsker, first of all, I want to just say hello to you and, and tell us about Klutz. K L U T Z. What is that? Hi, Colin. Klutz is a book that it's a, it's a publishing company that combines books and toys. So the original product that this company put out was a juggling book about 40 years ago. And they had this genius idea that they would drill a hole in the book and then attach juggling balls. So it's a, it's a company that's entirely built about failure. The idea is that the first thing that you learn when you learn to juggle is how to drop the balls correctly. And then they also made the balls into little cubes, kind of like hacky sacks, so that they wouldn't roll away. So 
out of this, they built a, a small empire of goofy and crazy stuff. The latest version um, that I might tell you about is called the Encyclopedia of Immaturity, which includes a variety of practical jokes and a whole range of ideas on how not to grow up. Um, as if people needed uh, encouragement not to grow up. I don't know. Well, I, have, some I, people, I haven't grown up and I don't need encouragement. Some people don't, Colin, yeah. but others do apparently. <laughs> okay. No, probably apparently, apparently they do. So this is very much in your blood, right? You've done this in, in various guises, uh, including starting kind of your own private practical joke company, right? Yes, it was a private practical joke company. Um, actually, it started around puberty. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, I had no sense of humor before that. But once puberty hit, things turned around, and I started doing practical jokes in high school. And then with some friends, had this idea that we would start a practical joke company for pay once we got out of college. And I think that was basically based upon the fact that we had no other skills. It was the only thing we had in common, and, and it didn't require much money. We needed a telephone. Uh, a big investment at that point was an answering machine. This tells you about when this happened. And, uh, and then from there... We started doing these elaborate practical jokes, which would cost anywhere from 150 bucks up to sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. Well, wh- what kind of practical joke would you spend tens of thousands of dollars on? Give us some So, examples. I mean, we did some. It, it, here's the challenge. The challenge is that these, the whole idea behind this was that we would research the, quotation marks here, victim, mm-hmm. and make sure that we did something that was appropriate for them, but also something that wouldn't send them over the edge. So, for example, have, have you ever been pranked? Um, I, I'm, try- I was, I'm trying to think. I mean, I'm sure I have been. I mean, not on any kind of large scale, though. Okay, so let's say we were going to do a prank on you. Right. We would research and we'd work with one of your producers. I won't tell you which one we worked with for this, mm-hmm. but we worked with one of your producers. And we would come up with a day of crazy things that would happen. But the idea is we want to do things that are credible but incredible at the same time. But we want to bre- we don't want to break through that barrier. So, for example, you might be doing a show on... I don't know, um, how immigrants have succeeded in America. And we'd have three guests lined up for you. And the first guest would be um, a woman from Africa who's importing apparel from Nigeria. Uh, But it turns out while she's waiting in the green room, she has a violent coughing fit, and she gets so hoarse that she can barely speak above a whisper. The next guy is a guy that's a real estate magnate who only speaks Mandarin, and his his translator hasn't shown up. And then the third one um, is somebody that's from Brazil who does ecotourism, and he's brought a parrot on, who sits on his shoulder, who's swearing throughout the entire interview that you're trying to do with him. So these crazy things are happening. You're scratching your head. The phone rings, and it's the mayor of a small Dutch village. Um, and it turns out that someone had written, written a, and he mispronounces it, a Santini Beyond tandem bike through this village and parked it illegally. So there was a fine that was supposed to be paid back in August of 2013 for 15 euro. But in fact, it's now escalated, so it's 350 euro, and they've been trying to track the perpetrator down, and they think it's you. Um, That call hangs up. Your interview goes on for a little while. The next guy that calls is Rush Limbaugh's attorney, and he has a defamation suit that he's going to file against you. And then maybe your day ends with the uh, with Jerry Franklin, the general manager of the station coming in, the president of the station coming in, to tell you that the station's actually going to be closing down and, and you need to stop speaking on the air right now. We then reveal, of course, what's happened. So as you can see, these are things that we have developed that are very specific to you. Mm-hmm. So your listeners may or may not understand why something is funny to have a practical joke played on somebody else if, in fact, they, aren't, if they don't know that person well. Now, that takes, obviously, and I should say, that took some research. Uh, I mean, what was on a Santana uh, tandem bike in the Netherlands in August. I mean, you, you've found some th- stuff out. So that raises the question, who who would hire you to do such a thing? I mean, I, I assume you did this gratis this time, but uh, to do it professionally, who tended to hire you when you were doing that kind of thing? 
Actually, I think I get a free lunch from one of your producers for doing that. Right. So, And then I got an extra free lunch for not actually doing it to you because we were thinking <laughs> about actually pulling mm-hmm. a practical joke on you. But they decided that you were way too smart for that. Um, so the idea was that we were going to bungle one today and then do the real thing on Friday when you were not expecting it. Right. Um, the types of people that might hire someone, um, and this is kind of an interesting thing from a business standpoint, you know, we didn't know at first who would hire us to do this when we came out of school. But what we found was this was in the Silicon, Valleys, in, in Silicon Valley in the mid-'80s. And there were lots of people that had you know, lots of young people who had lots of extra money to throw around on stuff like this. So we would do these practical jokes, and then one day uh, one of the assistants from one of the VP of sales or the CEO of a company who had hired us called and said, hey, do you guys do company picnics? And we hung up the phone, and we said, sure, we do company picnics. We hung up the phone and looked at each other. None of us had ever even been to a company picnic before. So we then decided that we would do a company picnic in the same way that we did these practical jokes. We would research the company and then come up with something that was just for them. So it was kind of a a novel approach to corporate events at that point because most corporate events were just sort of check the box. Do you want chicken or ribs? Do you want a square dance caller or a DJ? Um, And so we would then create these elaborate corporate events. And the Practical Jokes turned out to be a fantastic marketing effort for us because it got us tremendous publicity and it got us in touch with the CEOs and the VP of sales, the people that had ten or twenty or $30,000 to spend on a Practical Joke so that we could then have – but then it gave us access to their company. So I'm, I'm guessing also that CEOs like to play Practical Jokes, but they probably don't like Practical Jokes to be played on them. You are absolutely right about that. And one of the things that we were very careful about is to understand the situations that were acceptable and which weren't acceptable. So, for example, we never did anything about people buying homes or getting married. Mm-hmm. Those are so stressful. If you think about the largest financial commitment someone's going to make in their life, it has to do with buying a home. We could do fantastic practical jokes around that, but we never, ever did it to anybody. And the same thing about getting married. It's just The stakes are too high. So we have to understand What's okay to do and what's not okay to do? The interesting thing about it was that um, we found that the victims, once we revealed the pranks, went through three different stages. Mm-hmm. Um, the first stage was this huge sigh of relief that these crazy guests that had been there on the show, for example, for you, mm-hmm. were just – it was just a joke, and that's okay. And then once they regained their composure, they then started – then people would always say, well, you know – the guy with the parrot, he wasn't so convincing. The, the Nigerian <laughs> lady, she was pretty good. And then they'll go, hey, wait a second. Where's the crazy, crazy pizza delivery guy? And we'd say, well, actually, he wasn't one of us. So that was always, there was always something nutty that happened during the course of someone's day, which meant that we had done a good job because they, they assumed that one of the real things that happened was part of our practical jokes. Mm-hmm. And then the third piece, and this is what we were really after, was this realization that they had been the center of attention not just for today but for the entire time it took to plan this entire day of practical jokes. So it was a wonderful feeling for them and something they would talk about forever and forever and forever. I mean, I would you know bump into people two or three years later and they say, oh, not a day goes by that we don't talk about that practical joke you pulled on my uncle or my VP of sales or whatever, whatever it was. So it's really an it, – it's – in a, in a backwards way, from we, you talked about the psychology of practical jokes. It's a delightful present to give someone in a, in a very backwards sort of way. The other note that I'll make is that we were doing this back in the 80s, and this was in the days you know, when desktop publishing, as it used to be called, was still in its infancy. So to have a, a business card made for someone to you know, present the, the credential, you know, that took two weeks, and we had to buy 500 of them. Right, so we'd throw away four hundred ninety nine. We only needed one one business card. <laughs> Today, you can make a business card in you know, in twenty minutes. So we had a, a whole series of, you know, of contingency planning operations we had to go through to make sure that 
each and every practical joke could work out. You must have, uh, when the movie The Game with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn mm-hmm. came out, thought, wait a minute, that's my life. I actually do that, right? I mean, that's sort of it, more or less the premise of that movie. It absolutely is. And uh, and then, of course, you know, with Punk, we would hear the same thing as well. But Punk, to me, always had kind of a mean-spirited mm-hmm. piece to it. Uh, the Game was just sort of this high-stakes practical joke. It was fant- yeah, it was a fantastic movie, but that's exactly what it was. It was what we did with the volume turned up, if you will. The um, Now, I just uh, we're going to add Martin Wainwright to this conversation in just a second, but I just want to press you on one thing. I mean, people are really different in terms of their temperament, their psychology. So you're talking about the three stages of reactions to a practical joke. I, I'm assuming not everybody landed in that soft place that you describe uh, at the end where they suddenly realize they've been the focus of attention and this is a day they'll never forget. I mean, some people must uh, – there, there are people who really just don't enjoy being fooled no matter how cleverly or benignly it's done. Yes. I mean, the, the the times that we got closest to someone being concerned was, for example, we did one practical joke. I mentioned real estate magnate a moment ago where we had this guy in Palo Alto who thought he had sold this building that he had for so much money. And he actually then got some phone calls later that sap- that afternoon before the week before we could reveal it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from actually serious purchasers that he dismissed, he said, "Sorry, we sold it." So, you know, there are moments when we have to do that. But typically, what we tried to do is to have someone on the inside who could help us monitor the victim, so that we would be very, very careful, and we would be changing course left and right as we would go to make sure that we weren't pushing somebody over the edge. So, in the end, they really were benevolent. They were funny and they were benevolent, and. Maybe he didn't get to that third stage on the first moment when it, you know, then the first day when it happened, but certainly two or three or four days later, you'd sort of bask in the glow of that you'd been the center of attention, which most people seem to like. All right. Uh, Jeff, let's add to the conversation Martin Wainwright. Uh, he's the author of The Guardian Book of April Fool's Day. Martin Wainwright, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks very much. Nice to be with you. So maybe you can take us through the history of this or, or the anthropology of it. Uh, has humankind always been in the business of occasionally fooling one another? Very much so. I mean, it, it's, it's extraordinary how elaborate it's become now. I mean, that was a fascinating um, conversation you're just having and, and the, the lengths to which people go now in modern April Fools uh, and all the marvelous little details they add. But the origins of it were much simpler and it does it does go back a really really long way kind of to 3000 bc india and ancient persia and it was um it always used to be it was kind of two things really it was the beginning of the growing season when people were kind of feeling you know spring-like and frisky and also the idea that you'd have one day in the year when everything was turned on its head and so people who normally didn't get a say in things were allowed to kind of rule for the day that sort of thing um, and it um, it made its way through ancient Greece, ancient Rome, you know, to Europe, where it became almost part of the kind of church year. You had All Souls Day, very important religious festival in the autumn, and All Fools Day, the exact opposite of it, uh, in the spring. Because one one of the sort of I, I don't know how many people know, but New Year's Day was April the first in Europe until I think it was something like 1582, and mm-hmm. in England not till. It didn't change to January till 1752, um, not long before you guys left us. Um, so it, it, it was all to do with the start of the year as well. I, I just want to say that was just a joke anyway. We actually still do want to be part of the British Empire. It just, <laughs> well, you're, you're welcome back anytime, uh, we just, I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we were going to have Jeff call you actually and say, look, that we never meant that. That was just uh, Well, we had to actually, when, you know the White House April Fool last year when they got that little boy to stand in for the president at a press conference supposedly? 
and and we had one here with Cambridge University, you know, famous um, university in England, claiming that um, Obama, President Obama, was had agreed to come and talk to them, and they were just sort of finally sorting things out with the Pope. And I mean, that, that ones like that are not so good because I think people cotton on fairly quickly. Um, but um, it was it was you actually. It was it was with all due respect, the United States kind of changed the direction of April Fools in the 19th century because your I know your media nowadays is tremendously responsible and upright and checks everything but in the 19th century American newspapers were they were like kind of one continuous April Fool they were just full of <laughs> fiction um, elaborate accounts of life on the moon and um, Edgar Allan Poe you know the famous American writer mm-hmm. wrote a, a newspaper series on a record crossing of the Atlantic by balloon um, which was completely fictional but presented as fact um, and that that was when um, I think kind of you know large-scale deceit <laughs> entered the process well and, and I think it's also significant that um, uh, that we rest um, our our trust emphatically often on media that we're just getting used to. So in, in on the BBC, on television, kind of early in the era of television, uh, Britain had one of its most famous April Fool's jokes, the spaghetti joke. I'll, I'll let you tell that story. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think people generally agree that's probably the most successful April Fool's has ever been. And a key ingredient was um, that it was presented by this guy called Richard Dimbleby, the father of David and Jonathan Dimbleby, the British broadcasters today and he was he was just kind of such a trusted figure it was in the days when we only had two television channels bbc and itv and so the whole nation would tune in for major events um which richard dimbleby would always present and he uh, rather uh, there was quite a lot of hesitation about it but they they ran this wonderful spoof about the spaghetti harvest in um southern switzerland and i mean i was a boy then it shows how old i am but we didn't know anything about spaghetti, really, except it came in yellow Heinz tins, and it was in an orange sauce, and it was like little worms. But nobody much had any idea, really, what it was. So we were all credulous when this thing was broadcast with these Swiss young Swiss girls um, plucking it off trees <laughs> and, and sort of stretching it out to dry in the sun. And even the head of the BBC, who was a very sort of... Um, worthy gentleman called Sir Ian Jacobs. He and his wife watched it. They didn't know uh, in advance that it was an April Fool. And um, his wife said, who, who did know something about cooking, she said, no, this is, this is nonsense. Spaghetti is made of flour. And Sir Ian said, um, well, it's Richard Dimbleby. You know, it, it must <laughs> be right. And they went to the Encyclopedia Britannica to check who was correct. And the following day, um, when, when Jacobs came into the BBC, uh, he sought out the head of television and he said, he said, you know, we looked it up in the inside to be Britannica and there wasn't even an entry on spaghetti. <laughs> so they were, they were left in the dark. You know, it was a very, very good one. Yeah, Jeff, what were you, I hear you're about to say something. I was, I was just going to say, I wonder if spaghetti sales went up after that or went down after that, knowing that they've been handpicked by Swiss maidens. <laughs> I think they probably went up. And, and actually, people kind of joined in. There were protests. Um, some people wrote to the BBC saying, you know, once it was clear that it was a spoof, people said, you know, you're, you're, you're putting your credibility on the line. But I think that was a bit, you know, kind of slightly pompous minority. But other people sent in very elaborate letters saying, actually, it's grown in, they drill deep, straight holes in the ground and it grows up them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
everyone and, and John and actually what what your colleague was was just saying was was so true about the um gulling people because the Dimbleby script the filming was very very good uh, which of course on television is like the main thing but the script was also brilliant and it had lines like we're all familiar with the large scale spaghetti fields around Turin in Italy and of course none of us are but when you're told that you sort of think oh yes probably <laughs> um and it it draws you in you know and, and um Interesting what you're saying about monitoring the practical jokes, because I think the process of watching, I mean, you can do it with young children, um, not, in a, not in a bad way, but, you know, you can sort of lead them on. And it's it's fascinating to to watch the process and think, you know, I wonder how long they're going to believe this. <laughs> well, I think we are wired to trust rather than to mistrust or distrust. And, yeah. and I, I think, I mean, I've just discovered even over the course of a career of writing satire in which I was not intending to fool anyone, mm. uh, that people are are easily fooled. I, on a radio show I used to have, I re- routinely talked about this brand of pies that was named after an actual Civil War, uh, excuse me, American Revolutionary War, that, that unfortunate thing you alluded to before. Heroin, locally, there was a figure named Sarah Whitman Hooker, and I would talk about the Sarah Whitman, Whitman Hooker pies and try a hooker for a change, and they had all these flavors like Colonel Elwood's Sensible Peach for Young Christian Women. And people would go to stores, I would say they're in your grocer's freezer, and people would go to grocery stores and try to get them. I wasn't, it never occurred to me for a second that anyone was going to believe that these pies existed. Well, that's, that's so, so to the point, really, because I mean, I don't know if you remember the left-handed burger that one of the big yes. burger chains burger in America thing, yeah. did, and that was such a good one because they, they they said, you know, which a lot of people think, I think, in in other fields, they said, you know, for far too long, left-handed people have been out of it. You know, everything is to the right-handed, uh, including burgers, and it means that all when you're if you're left-handed and you're eating one of our burgers, you know, all the filling goes to one side, and so the, what we're going to we're going to turn it all around 180 degrees, and uh, it'll be a left-handed burger. Which is complete nonsense, <laughs> but um, but but it, 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 uh, but it tastes better if you think it's left-handed, right? Yeah, and the water one in California, where um, the, the, these people at one of the universities said that I don't know, do you, do you have those um foam styrofoam coffee cups in your radio station? We don't allow those. This is public radio. No, right. Well, well anyway, this guy <laughs> said, you know, it's been discovered that these cups, um, their use involves a large quantity of dihydrogen monoxide, and which sounds awful. And at least two cities in um, California started work on, you know, their public health department started investigating this, until somebody said, wait a minute, that's H2O, uh, and that's water. <laughs> well, and I think sometimes the source is important. That's something, Martin Wainwright, that you're referring to, that, you know, if it's Dimbleby on the BBC and he's never done anything funny before, that's a great way to hook people. And Jeff Pinsker, I'm assuming you found that, too, that that if somebody has a reputation for being funny, playful, foolish, capricious, they're a bad delivery vehicle for some kind of practical joke. Typically, you're right about, again, it depends on what you're trying to deliver. So if we have, you know, for example, we did a, a stunt at a, at a restaurant where we had an underage drinker. We, we were playing a prank on the manager of the restaurant. So we had an underage, among many other things that happened that night, we had an underage drinker who got busted by our Alcoholic Beverages Commission agent, which is a big issue for the manager that managers got to deal with. Mm-hmm. So in that particular instance, we need someone that has a pretty straight delivery. On the other hand, if we're, we had another one where we had this um, this guy that was interviewing for a job and he had his attorney present the attorney was the victim and um, every time the attorney would leave the room he would turn to the victim 
and he would and he would tell him about this sexual escapade he'd had or something else. That one we need a little bit different delivery than a very straightforward alcoholic beverages commission agent who's you know pretending to be some sort of government agent. Well, um, now Martin Wainwright, one of the ones that you chronicled, I know, and and this one really did fool a lot of smart people. Was uh, the New Yorker magazine uh, George Plimpton writing about a baseball pitcher who did not exist? Well, I guess yeah. it was. I guess it was uh, Sports Illustrated that did this. It was the story of Sid Finch, though, this uh, incredible baseball player who was going to transform baseball. I think my recollection was he was going to be a pitcher for the Mets, and he practiced Zen Buddhism and, and stuff like that, right? That's right, and, and and apparently you know was trained in Tibet by um by lamas um priests you know, in in Tibet and so could supposedly pitch at 168 miles an hour. It was it was Sports Illustrated in 1985. I don't know if you know. I'm not a great baseball expert, and whether pitching has now reached such incredible speeds. Not quite. But it was a guy called George Plimpton, and that's, I mean, to me as a Brit, it's a slightly unknown world, to be honest. And I know I've I've come across people who find the spaghetti one, they sort of, it leaves them cold, really. But but, but that one was enormously, um, enormously popular in America, and is is always held up as as one of the great American ones. But... um, it's interesting. This the, the point about um, serious people getting away with it is a, mm. is a very good one. But it's also interesting how sources that you might think you know they're the sort of people who would do an April Fool can also get away with it because on the internet now, April Fooling has gone completely ballistic. And um, Twitter did a wonderful one last year, which and you'd have thought people would be on the lookout with with you know a sort of lively fun organization like Twitter, but they announced they were going to charge um, people using Twitter to use vowels, A-E-I-O-U, and then they added a little detail, which is often a key thing with an April Fool. They said, um, you can use, if if you're using Y, the letter Y as a vowel, that will be free. And people immediately started doing tweets with (laughs) all the vowels replaced with Ys, and if you do that... It looks like like Welsh. It favors the Welsh, I think. (laughs) Yes, but but it it is actually legible. And so people were saying, you know, stupid Twitter, we don't need to pay. Uh, And then, you know, just a bit later on in the day, 12 o'clock, all supposed to stop at 12 o'clock, so I hope nobody's doing it anymore now. Um, It was like, you know, April Fool... (laughs) <laughs> well, funny. well, I, you know, I think the other part of it is people believe what they want to believe. You know, yeah. they, they want to believe that spaghetti comes from this exotic place. They want to believe there's this amazing pitcher, you know, who, who uses Zen Buddhism and was trained in Tibet and is going to be just different from anything they've ever seen. And they kind of also want to believe in outrage. People want to get outraged about something. It's outrageous for Twitter to start charging for vowels, and it gives people a chance to be in a high dudgeon about something. Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Martin. Well, I think that, 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 that's true. I think there's also there's a kind of sentimental thing um, that some people just, they love April Fool so much that they, that they don't really mind if they're not deceived. And the classic case of this, I think it's stopped now, but St. John's, the port of St. John's in Newfoundland, um, the newspaper there used to do the same April Fool every year, and it was, it was, the, the harbour there has a very narrow entrance. And the April Fool was always that it was going, it was being blocked by an iceberg. And one year they stopped. They didn't do it. And, and people rang up, it was before the days of email, or wrote in and said, um, why, why can't we have our April Fool? And the editor said, um, well, you know, we've done it for rather a long time now, and people are used to it. And people said, no, no, but there's always visitors to St. John's, and they'll get hooked. You know, they'll be, they'll be caught by it. And 
the Google, do you remember the Google aliens in Area 51? Yes. Well, that, that was a lovely one. I mean, it, I don't think anyone was fooled by it, but it was very, very clever because they, on Google Earth, went overlooking this Area 51 place in Nevada where all the sort of spooky things apparently go on. There was this, if you were just looking at the base, there was a little dot on the runway. And they didn't say anything about it, Google. They didn't drop any hints. Mm. But they, people, or sort of people who you know believe in the X Files and everything, were constantly looking at Area 51. And so they zoomed in, and there were these two little turquoise aliens, you know, with little antennae, just how we imagine aliens. And they had a little flying saucer, like a poached egg. It was the same sort of thing that you always think a flying saucer will look like. And one of them was making a barbecue, <laughs> uh, and the other one was cleaning the flying saucer's windscreen. <laughs> Like a couple on a Sunday afternoon outing, you know. <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, I admire that. That's that's admirable. Hey, Martin Wainwright, it's been so great to talk to you. Martin Wainwright is the author uh, of the Guardian Guardian book of April Fool's Day. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We'll have more Jeff Pinsker as the show goes on. We're also going to talk to the aforementioned Joey Skaggs. It seems so cruel That's somebody playing me an April Fool That's somebody playing me an April Fool Have you ever been pranked? Yes, I have. The classic pull the chair out from under you. People slid tacks on my seat, you know, back in middle school. When we go out to eat, they take my wallet, my car key. She's usually the one we prank, but we always gang up on her. When I was asleep... My brothers suspended my limbs with sticks and put cups of water in my hand. And then when I woke up, I shook off all the sticks, fell to the ground, and spilled the water on myself. So those are, of course, the crudest and most primitive of pranks and practical jokes. Um, Jeff Pinsker, although the, the conversation we just had with Martin Wainwright brings up a point, which is there really are different levels and subspecies of what we're talking about. I mean, you have this kind of elaborate and, and delightful hoax. I mean, the whole notion that Google would, on Google Earth, implant this tiny, tiny, tiny uh, little uh, couple of aliens uh, with their poached egg saucer and, and, and all that kind of stuff. That's very funny and just letting people kind of discover it uh, in the natural flow of things. There's something very pun- funny about that. And then, I mean, obviously at the far and lowest end are the descriptions you just heard uh, in the Voices from the Street collected by our intern Anna Novak. And then there's, there's this fast middle ground of stuff. But it's not all the same, right? Some of it's elaborate and delightful and some of it just seems kind of pointlessly mean and deceptive. I agree. And, you know, the interesting thing about it, too, is that the length of time that that prank stays with somebody, I think, is directly related or correlated to the amount of time you spend on it. So mm-hmm. you pull the chair out from you know, underneath somebody, and that's something that you laugh about for a couple of minutes, then it's completely forgotten, except, of course, by the victim who may be looking for revenge. You do something that unfolds over a series of time, the Twitter thing people are still talking about. I mean, I'm sure Martin's book includes some of the crude pranks you were talking about, but I'll bet the vast majority of the examples he uses are ones that have been, you know, lots of thought and effort's been put into him and down to that level of detail. You know, the in- other interesting thing that he raised, and this sort of dawned on me during his conversation about the Newfoundland um, newspaper, is that people love to be insiders. So there's this whole psychological element to the fact that I was in on this and I knew about it in advance and I figured it out. Uh, that you get, And it, there's sort of a revelatory moment that you get as somebody who's in on that to say, oh, yeah, I'm on the inside, but let's fool the tourists who are visiting our island. 
One of the places that, that pranks occur a lot are in the media. In fact, somebody's tweeting right now that years ago that I talked about a volcano erupting on Avon Mountain and somebody else was looking for lava, true story, except that it wasn't me. I'm almost positive it was Sebastian who did that. Uh, and we, I should say there are actually pretty strict rules uh, from the FCC about hoaxes and what can happen to you if you're a radio person and you do hoaxes and people believe it and harm comes to anybody. You don't want to be on the other end of that. But the media is a really interesting place for a lot of this to, to, to play out, partly because people from the media sometimes don't ask enough questions. So our next guest is uh, Ricky Skaggs, not Ricky Skaggs, he's a country musician, Joey Skaggs, who is a multimedia artist in New York City, sometimes called the world's greatest hoaxer. Here's the conversation we had earlier this week. We had to pre-tape it because one of the things that uh, that Joey does is he claims there is an annual New York City April Fool's Day parade, which I think just consists of the press release announcing that it's happening. He also has to pretend that it's happening. So uh, he couldn't talk to us today. Uh, here he was yesterday. Our guest right now is Joey Skaggs. He is a hoax artist. Some would say he's the greatest hoax artist in the world. He might say he's the greatest hoax artist in the world. One of the things he specializes in is fooling credulous members of the media, like me. So uh, he has appeared uh, about a Save the Geoduck campaign. Uh, he played Richard J. Long, who sought to save the geoduck mollusks from extinction because they'd become a popular aphrodisiac among the Japanese. He has, be, he has appeared as a, a hair implant tycoon, offering whole scalps from the dead as hair implants. He has been Baba Wasimba, uh, a sort of lion-based therapist who recommended that participants roar and behave like lions, sort of as primal scream therapy. I could go on, Joey Skaggs, but you probably have your own favorite uh, media hoaxes that you'd like to mention. Well, first of all, thank you for the plug, but I would never be so arrogant and outrageous to declare myself anything like that. I'm an artist, and I use the media as a medium. And what I mean by that is I create plausible, fake realities that are specifically designed, as you said, to fool the news media and, in turn, fool the public. And when you when you do this, watching even uh, the um, parts of, of, the, of the movie, The Art of the Hoax, one of the things one notices is that you've essentially fooled the same people numerous times. I think Jack Cafferty, before his years with CNN, makes multiple appearances as a Ricky Skaggs victim. I think about six times. <laughs> so in some ways, it's pretty easy, right? Unfortunately, it's, it's easy. That's the sad commentary about all of this, that you can come up with some plausible, wacky idea and stage it with you know the right elements, having a good location, good actors, props, and fool the most biggest and most important self-proclaiming <laughs> news stations and journalists that exist. It's frightening. I would assume also that, not that you would ever want anybody to lose his or her job over something like this, but I'm guessing that nobody does. I mean, some TV station uh, decides to put on this guest from Walk Right, uh, a fictitious militant group that wants to um, enforce street walking etiquette and, and make rules uh, about how people walk. They, they put you on because they need a guest to plug the hole. It turns out you're a complete imposter. I assume nobody ever gets fired over this. This is just sort of considered breakage, right? Yeah. It's not to my knowledge has anyone ever been fired. They've been embarrassed, which is my point. My point is to you know have people question the credibility of news people that just put anything uh, you know that they think is funny or interesting or ridiculous out as serious news. So embarrassing the journalists is a, a part of what I do. The other part of what I do is to hopefully draw attention to the serious issues that are 
buried within the satire, within the hoax, to make people examine these things and question them. My work really essentially is, what do you believe in? How did you come to your beliefs? Do you ever question the sources of your beliefs? If not, why not? So that's it. I, you know, I find creative ways to stage an event. It's like doing a film or a theater piece. You have to conceive it, write it, produce it, direct it, stage it, all of these elements, and it's ephemeral. Uh, there's no viable commercial commodity. I'm putting something out there, which is a conceptual art performance piece, hopefully to uh, get people to laugh and get people to question and get people to think. So when you say get people to think, I mean, let, let's take uh, something at least mildly controversial. So at one point you uh, portrayed a gentleman named Kim Young-soo, a butcher who wanted to purchase dogs uh, for food. Obviously, one thing that you're doing is fooling the media into believing that there is such a person and then exhibiting that person uh, on a television program or a radio program. I assume the other part of it is you're also confronting people with their own attitudes, maybe their, their own attitudes about what Asian people are like. Exactly. Questioning stereotypical propaganda. Exactly. The case of you, Kim Young-soo, which is my alias, which is dog meat soup, was really just a letter. I sent out 1,500 letters to dog shelters around the country offering to buy their unwanted dogs for 10 cents a pound, saying dog is good food, dog is good medicine, make old people young, make sick people well, make penis hard, make sex good again. And I said we had quick death for dog, no, no worry. Well, I sent it out to dog shelters. So the people that called to a designated line were people from those shelters. And they pretended to be people wanting to sell me dogs, trying to entrap me. They were journalists that the animal rights people got to investigate it, pretending also to want to do business with me, to entrap me. And journalists who were animal rights lovers just fictionalized their stories. They said that they spoke to me, spoke to a member of, of, the, of the organization, which is not true. All I had was an outgoing message by a Korean woman friend, spoken in English and in Korean, with a couple of dogs barking in the background like they were about to be thrown into a, a hot bucket of, of soup and uh, yapping away. And that's all it took. That outgoing message just infuriated people to lie in the media, saying that they spoke to these members and they were setting up situations to buy the dogs that dogs were disappearing in their neighborhoods. And journalists even went out and ambushed Asians in front of restaurants. You know, have you seen this? You know, I mean, it's just frightening. But again, it, it's to shed light on how we are the, the moral police of the world. We uh, are prejudiced in, in our reporting and our thinking. We are biased, to say the least. And uh, I was just pointing a light to that. Well, let me play sort of devil's advocate or journalist advocate or something like that for That's a second. Good. I could say, well, geez, Joey, in the time that I spent investigating this completely fictitious dog butcher, you know, I actually could have been doing some serious reporting. I might have done, I might have been doing some reporting about something that would have done the world some good. Instead, you essentially found a way to waste my time running down well, a lead that didn't exist. That's a good journalist approach to someone who's proud to be a journalist and has been embarrassed or is taking a defensive stance. But the fact is, I read Clue all these things. When I was Joe Bones, I was the proprietor of a business called The Fat Squad, where for $300 a day, we had commandos that would follow you around, whether you were at work, sleeping in the bedroom, on a date, wherever you were. Uh, every eight hours, a new commando would take over the ship, so you were covered 24-7. And we would be entitled by a contract to use physical force 
to take that chocolate cake away from you if it violated your diet. And my name was Joe Bones. I'm on Good Morning America with I, David Hartman. I know it's Having previously been on Good Morning America with David Hartman for something else, and so I'm sitting six feet away from him, and he never, you know, makes the connection. But my name is Joe Bones. Now, come on. You know, I was Jojo the Gypsy calling for the renaming of the Gypsy Moth because of the, you know, horrible things that we gypsies are facing, stereotypical propaganda from the Gypsy Moth and Gypsy Cabs. I said, call the Ayatollah moth, call the Idi Amin moth, call it the Hitler moth. We gypsies are having a work stoppage, no fortune telling for one week until something is done. So, I mean, the most obvious, ridiculous aliases, clues, red flags everywhere. Now, you telling me that I'm supposed to feel sorry for a journalist <laughs> that, that doesn't look at the obvious and go, wait a minute, this is too good to be true. That's the problem. It's too good to be true. It's easy for them, and they jump on a press release or the promise of a great visual. I promise great press releases and great visuals when I stage an event. You want to see this. You, why do you, wow, this send someone down to cover that. And I count on that. I didn't know the Gypsy Moth one. That's really good. Does this simply happen because Good Morning America or anybody else, they sort of have time to fill, right? And they want to go with the most colorful, borderline, goofy concept. Like I saw this segment with with the the fat watchers, the the sort of the thugs who would follow you around and make sure you didn't That's eat. Cool. And and everybody had sunglasses on and they looked kind of scary and stuff. And I'm assuming some Good Morning America producer just thought, well, that's kind of goofy. That's kind of fun. We've got six minutes we've got to fill. Uh, let's do it. And it's 54 million obese people, and it's a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And there are people making millions of dollars pumping out stupid diets, stupid books, exploiting this whole thing. So to do a parody on it was obvious. And, of course, it fits right into the media's need to satiate their audience with this kind of story. So, yeah, I'm giving the media what I think it is that they want, and I'm usually right, which is unfortunate because people like Jack Cafferty and other journalists who have been repeatedly hoaxed, I mean, they're kind of like the puppets. You know, they don't go out and do the news story. They're handed these news stories. Right. I've fooled CNN numerous times, you know. So I've had people come to my studio on Waverly Place, my fake office, which has been the home for numerous pranks, and the same camera crew comes in. (laughs) There used to be a guy here. He used to make fish condos, condominiums for upperly mobile guppies. He had these working... I said, oh, really? That was me? (laughs) (laughs) So when I was a priest, I was a Dominican priest. I built a confessional booth. I mounted on the back of a tricycle, and I put on a full priest cassock, and I pedaled to the 1992 Democratic Convention to hear the confessions of the politicians. I was chased down the street as I was trying to get away from journalists who had already interviewed me numerous times for other stories because I was afraid they were going to recognize me. I just couldn't keep pedaling and get away. I just stopped and said, okay, if they get me, they get me, and that's it. They didn't. You know, it was like clothes make the man. They thought that I was a priest. It's a, it's a rush, I'll tell you, because, you know, there's an element of great humor to, and fun to doing these things. But there's also, the, the, you know, the serious element, and, and that is, you know, what I, what I hope to mix, a little humor and a little thoughtfulness. I'm not sure if anybody's ever done this uh, for you or with you, uh, but Joey Skaggs, it occurred to me to, that uh, I would share with you some of the emails that I get from people who are not Joey Skaggs, from PR people who are trying to get 
on the show. And I'm on public radio right now, so I don't get the worst of them. I used to work in commercial radio where I got a lot of PR people contacting right. me about devil babies and stuff like that. Right. So I think all of this is from today. So here's one. Got a headache. You're not alone. Neuro- neurologist and mind body doc shares natural migraine prevention tips. The key one turns out to be something called feverfew. Feverfew is one of the many effective herbs studied for preventing migraine headaches, um, yeah. uh, et cetera. Okay, now I'll skip over this one. Okay, here's the next one. It's for mosquitoes. Here's an all-natural, non-toxic wristband made of silicone rubber and infused with 100% citronella oil. The Mesquite No bands, uh, you can wear those. Would I be interested in talking to somebody or to get a sample to review? That's from a PR company. This is a guy uh, who wants to talk to me. His PR people, called Sandy Pundits, want me to talk to some guy about how unbiblical the movie Noah is. His qualifications are that he's a New York Times bestselling author. Everybody is commentator, media analyst, and law professor. He is admitted to practice in the U.S. Supreme Court. And for some reason or other, I'm supposed to talk to him about how unbiblical Noah is. Right. Well, you know what? Every example you just gave Mm -hmm. is someone attempting to sell something. They are looking to exploit a gullible public. And that's the difference between doing a social, political, satirical hoax or prank and a scam. A scam is designed to remove money from your wallet, period. We're all being scammed. We scam ourselves just to exist. Our parents scam us as we're growing up, and the government and corporations scam us. And, and if you take about Noah, I mean, let's leave some credibility out of the story. Huge leaps of faith to believe in religion. So what are we telling our kids, and, and what are we perpetrating? It's really a lot of hype, hypocrisy, propaganda, disinformation, outright lies. And we thrive in this world with trying to figure out, what do I believe? And uh, if a prank can shed light on it, on something and go, well, I believe that, and if I believe that, what else do I believe in that I shouldn't believe in? What should I be questioning? The answer is question authority. Question uh, everyone who says that they have an answer. And on that uplifting note, uh, we have to go. Joey Skaggs, great to talk to you today. I hope you do enjoy your April Fool's Day, although it seems like the equivalent of uh, New Year's Eve for a serious drinker. I mean... <laughs> You're pretty much doing this all the time, right? I've got to get back out to the parade, which I've stopped to do this. I thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's Joey Skaggs. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we'll have more of Jeff Pinsker, and you'll meet one more professional prankster, Tom Mabe. Rattle sheep. <laughs> that really was an April Fool's joke. The rattle sheep was taken into custody this morning. Ow! I don't think I can suck the venom out from that angle. But Justin Bieber sure could. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with help from our intern Jane Ashley and Anna Novak. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. For show pages, photos, and a listener's guide to WNPR's new John Rowland show, <laughs> April Fool's. Visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Extra Teeny Tiny Particles. And now, back to Colin. Hey, Justin, are you doing anything right this moment? 
All right. So we're very close to being out of time. Um, and uh, I want to quickly add to the conversation Tom Mabe, also a professional prankster living in Kentucky. Tom Mabe, we're not going to have a lot of time for you to tell a lot of the stories of pranks that you've pulled. And one of them is kind of famous, uh, making a telemarketing caller uh, believe they're calling to uh, an actual crime scene where the uh, the person that they thought they were trying to cold call has been murdered. But, you know, just sort of to go back to, to Joey Skaggs's argument, you haven't uh, at times done pranks to sort of enlighten somebody. I, I know you had a, a a friend who was drinking and driving, and you want to quickly tell that story? Yeah, you know, he's had, he's had five DUIs, and uh, I thought to myself, one day he's going to wake up in a hospital and not know what happened. So I said, there it is. I took an empty office in my building, and I made up like an exact replica of a hospital room. When he passed out drunk, which was like three or four times a week, we transported him to the hospital room, the fake hospital room, when he came to, we had a, a fake nurse, another fake doctor. We, we told him that he has been in a coma for 10 years. And, you know, unlike Joey Skaggs, my pranks are like 90% troubleshooter, 10% troublemaker. I, I don't go try to prank people who don't deserve to be pranked. So, uh, but I love Joey Skaggs. He's someone I would like to prank. Mm. So did, did it work with that guy? Did he, did he straighten himself no. out? No. He cut back a little bit because people were, he would go to bars. First, people were buying him shots because you know it got 20 million views on YouTube. Mm. So they were taking pictures with, with him and buying him shots. And then people start getting mad when they see him out drinking. Like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah. You've had five. De- He's been arrested seven times total for drinking. But you, do you temporarily did convince him that he'd been in a coma for a long time, right? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. He's concerned about his daughter. He's a uh, guy with a very simple guy. He, may, he, may, he makes Forrest Gump look like uh, Albert Einstein. All right. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but, yeah, go ahead. We, you know, we're actually sort of out of time. I'm really, really sorry about this. The, maybe it's sort of the ultimate practical joke, though. We ran out of time uh, before everybody who could, t- could tell their stories. Jeff Pinsker, uh, president of Klutz and the vice president of Scholastic Incorporated, thank you so much. Martin Wainwright, uh, author of Guardian Book of April Fool's Day. Tom Mabe, Joey Skaggs, have a good April Fool's Day. Don't hurt anybody. Here's your paycheck, Kion. Oh, thanks, Greg. Let's see. My salary is doubled? They're going to have to do a whole fun drive just to keep paying me this much. Not that I'm complaining. I mean, the things I'm going to be able to do, the, the freedom to... Gotcha. It's payroll fool's day. 